Welcome to Investing for Ocean Impact, a podcast providing the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Hemp. In the first episode, we heard how private sector money needs to be part of the future of the conservation and restoration of coastal and marine ecosystems. In the second episode, we dove deeper into the concept of nature-based solutions and discussed different revenue-generating activities. So if you manage a conservation project and want to venture into the world of private finance, where do you start? How do you move towards becoming a self-sustaining business, generating an income and making yourself appealing to investors? With the Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility, the BNCFF, we are providing funds and advice to project developers around the world who want to make that leap. In this episode, we'll hear their stories. Joining me today are three project developers, each with a different approach and business model. Nick Hill from coast for sea Hi Dorothy, thank you for having me. Valdemar Andrade from the Turnoff Atoll Sustainability Association. Hi Dorothy, thank you for having us. And Maria Claudia Diaz-Granados from Conservation International. Hi Dorothy, thank you for inviting me. It's really wonderful to have you, thank you so much. So Nick, let's start with you. What is Coast for Sea? Coast for Sea is a social enterprise. It's integrating the world's largest supply chain for regenerative seaweed. So we work with um, small-scale fishing communities in the Philippines in particular, looking to support them to increase their regenerative um, seaweed or sustainable seaweed production, and then helping to aggregate that supply from small-scale fishing communities and ensure that it is, is d- delivering positive impacts and benefits for the ocean and for the small-scale fishers themselves. What is the social and environmental benefits of Coast for Sea? The benefit comes from the, the livelihood activity um, of seaweed farming for the small-scale fishers and the spin-off impacts of that. Seaweed farming is a very large component of fisheries production in the Philippines. It's about one-third of fisheries production. People do seaweed farming as part of a diversified livelihood with fishing. However, the challenges are that they face lots of risks associated with everything from climate and theft through to market risks, um, being able to get a good price in the market. And those risks can drive some negative practices, both in terms of the seaweed farming practices themselves, meaning they can't invest in sustainable, reusable materials. So, for example, they generate lots of marine plastic pollution. In fact, seaweed farming is responsible for about 50% of the marine plastic pollution contributed by coastal communities in the Philippines. Um, It also leads to them farming over the wrong habitats, um, having a negative impact on coral reefs, for example. But the other side of the coin is that it leads them to invest revenue from seaweed farming into fishing. And this is something we discovered through the PhD work that, that, that I did when I was out there. So they invest the revenue from seaweed farming into fishing because fishing was a less risky occupation for them. They could go out and do fishing today and they get an income today. Whereas with seaweed, you're planting seaweed today, you need to wait 45 to 50 days before you can harvest it. In that time, a lot of things can go wrong, whether it's a a typhoon um, or somebody coming and stealing your seaweed or um, the the impacts of pollution uh, from cyanide fishing, for example. So the environmental and social benefits really coming from help to de-risk that seaweed farming activity for people 
people so they can increase their yields sustainably using sustainable materials, eliminate the marine plastic pollution associated with that. And it comes from integrating seaweed farming into marine protected areas, particularly community-based marine protected areas. So these are led by the communities. So that means that seaweed farming is being done sustainably and contributing directly to effective marine protected area implementation. So this is why we term it regenerative seaweed farming. Where does the revenue from these business opportunities come from? The revenue comes from the sale of, of the seaweed. So we work with those small scale fishers and we guarantee them an offtake and we pay them a premium price for their seaweed. We aggregate that from a large number of coastal communities and then we process that and sell it to responsible global brands. How big is your business? So how many people do you work with on the ground and actually generate an impact for? We have a network of 35 villages in the central Philippines um, with two and a half thousand people within our supply chain. Great. Thank you so much. Valdemar, over to you. Can you explain us a bit about your project in Belize? Yes, so we we are the official co-managers of the Ternaf Atoll Marine Reserve. The reserve actually drives about 250 million US dollars worth of economic revenue, which includes about 380 million dollars in shoreline protection, 151.6 million dollars in tourism, 7 million dollars in fishery, and about 5 to 7 million dollars in blue carbon proposed. And we have an unknown deep sea fishery as well. So our project basically is to be able to manage the area so that we can continue the revenue generation. The marine reserve is actually set up as a fisheries and tourism management tool. And so the idea is how can we invest to ensure that there is the sustainability of these economic gains? So basically, we are embarking now on a blended finance approach. In the past, our business model used to be we raise grants to be able to do this. But that is not consistent enough to be able to manage the protected area. So there are ebbs and flows within the different projects. You know, it doesn't create enough balance to be able and consistency. And so now we are moving to a blended finance approach, which we can discuss later. Yeah, that, that would be wonderful. And what type of ecosystem do you have in your reserve and what type of management activities are you taking to conserve or restore them? Turnf is 342,000 acres of marine protected space. It has around 11,000 hectares of mangroves. It has an abundance of fringing reef because it's an atoll. And then we also have an immense amount of seagrass, an immense amount of coral reefs. So the combination of the 11,000 hectares of mangroves, coral reefs, and seagrass beds make it a complete microcosm of the entire Belize bio reef system. Pre-COVID, um, these natural resources, especially the blue spaces like the Turner Atoll Marine Reserve, were helping to generate about 700 million Belize dollars worth of tourism revenues. And so our economy is intrinsically tied to these ecosystems. That's great. Fascinating. We'll come back to that uh, later in the episode. But now, Maria Claudia, you're working on a project in Colombia. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there? Yes, sure, Dorothy. Conservation International in Colombia is supporting a project called Vida Manglar, which is pioneering new methodologies to measure greenhouse gas emissions from mangrove conservation in the Caribbean coast. 
We are a tiny little project compared to the other ones, uh, but we still have more or less 12,000 inhabitants living in and around these mangrove areas. Uh, some of them live in extreme poverty. And uh, this area is also home of five species of mangroves that provide habitat to critically endangered and endemic species that are key for us to maintain within the project. Can you tell us a bit more how your business model functions? What is it based on? Well, we have been trying to maintain and sustain in the long term the management approach of this area. And as Valdemar was mentioning, we used to have a lot of grants and philanthropy projects there, but we decided to transform this project into a blue carbon one and sell credits to guarantee that we will be able to have a small amount of money over a large period of time. And that is what we are doing right now. So we were certified by VERA at the beginning of this year under VCS and CCB standard. We are now selling the blue carbon credits in the international voluntary market. And with that revenue, we are maintaining all the activities that are part of the management plan of that project. And do you have other opportunities other than carbon credits? Are you looking at other revenue generating opportunities? Yes, sure. Because we know that by selling carbon credits, we will not be able to cover the project. So we are also receiving funds from environmental compensations, tourism fees, and we are also promoting local economic initiatives to maintain at least locally uh, some of the uh, revenues for these communities. And indeed, you're pioneering this yeah, carbon credits, carbon market opportunity through mangrove conservation. How is this process look like and how do you sell your credits on the market? At project like that requires a lot of information, a collaborative work between different stakeholders, an alignment process of objectives between the public and private actors, as well as a transparent and participatory um, negotiation process, which is very difficult. And we have been working on that for the last three years or so. And with that information, we were able to present a robust project to Berra. But selling those credits in the international voluntary market is not being easy, I have to say, because we need to change the mindset of many of these companies that are willing to buy credits, but paying very little amount of money to get them. We are offering a high quality project and we are asking or we are hoping to receive enough funds to guarantee that we will be covering at least between 50 and 60% of the financial needs. But that's not easy. We need to teach the future buyers and companies about not only the project, but also the co-benefits that are key in these type of processes. And that's what we are selling right now. So you know which companies or which individuals are going to buy the credits that you're generating? Yes, we have a, a long list of potential buyers, but we are also trying to select who we want to buy at the end and who are not the best companies that we want to receive money from. So basically, we are selecting them by doing a, a first screening assessment. 
And that is because uh, we receive a lot of concerns from local communities. They don't want to receive money from companies that had in the past environmental or social issues. So we are doing this screening assessment before we actually do these one-to-one -one negotiations, but we are also offering the credits via uh, virtual auctions. And uh, using that platform, we are also able to select the future buyers. And every single company that is interested in buying those credits are assessed during our due diligence process. So in some cases, they are not suitable because they don't have climate um, goals, for example, internally speaking, or they don't comply with our climate principles. Great. Thank you so much. Valdemar, you mentioned already blended finance, the Sustainable Ocean Fund. So can you tell us a little bit more how you moved from a more conservation grant funding approach towards blended finance? As I mentioned before, the grant process is a very risky process in itself because many times the funds don't all arrive together. And also there is not a lot of funds for capital investment. So we don't have the advantage of having a large sum of money to be able to invest in products that then we can leverage in a commercial approach. It also doesn't cover a lot of operational costs. So the blended finance approach actually was presented to us through the fisheries department. They came to us and said, you know, for us to discuss with you, you need to take a minimum of $2 million US dollars. And so when we did the feasibility study, we said to them, we can't take 2 million US dollars at this time. We are, this is in the middle of COVID, right? The most that we could have taken is 750,000 US dollars in terms of an actual loan. It took us about a good number of months to complete the due diligence under this process. So imagine the due diligence that you go through for a grant approach, but now this is a private sector due diligence process. But what it did for us is that it strengthened us as, as an organization by us realizing, okay, these are our strengths, but our weaknesses were in the business department. And generally, natural resource managers are risk averse. Business people are risk takers. And so we have had to hire people with that necessary skill. Once we were completed with this due diligence, then it's a process of taking it to both boards. At that time, we proposed 750,000 US dollars, and then we would find the rest from other areas. This is where the BNCFF comes in, right? This is what makes it work. But both partners are saying, okay, we will give you the money if you approve the loan. And the impact investors are saying, we will give you the loan if IUCN approves the grant. And so we, you know, we are caught there in, in the middle of this approach. But it was interesting because we were gradually able to convince both parties. We got agreements at the same time, which was very key because once the funds came in, you know, now we were in a business approach and we were able to execute those funds within the limited time that we have, which was our first test of our metal in terms of this business approach, putting it on the ground. It was important for us because November is our, the start of our tourism high season. The timing was right, but it required a lot of sleepless nights. We are, we are also working across different time zones. And so sometimes I was up one, two in the morning. On your side, the BNCFF funds had a particular set of requirements and time frame within we needed to execute it as well. But it was a good test because then we had to ensure we are 
doing the contracts right, ensuring that we are requesting uh, bids, we are doing everything that is necessary to ensure that this happens at the right time. At the end of the day, I think a big lesson here is that for us, this is the future of us paying for the work that we do. The next step now is to ensure that the revenue model has a system that we are investing it in the right way. So we also hired an adaptive management program director because once we drive the revenues, then we have to prove to both of you that we are putting it in the right place to be able to measure those key performance indicators. The scientists are in place and, and they're not cheap, right? And what we did is we have built networks around each of these systems for support with technical advice. Thank you, Valdemar. Nick, over to you. I want to know more about your story, how you sort of shifted from a more traditional conservation background and organization to actually, you know, making the leap and working with the private sector and attracting private sector finance. So can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, sure. And it's fascinating listening to Valdemar and Maria Claudia. Um, it's been on obviously some similar journeys, with, although with some quite different models. Like them, I started working with a traditional conservation organization, largely grant funded. So that was the Zoological Society of London. One of the reasons why we started working with seaweed farming is actually we've been working on marine protected areas for a long time, There's particularly community based marine protected areas. And we had come across these same issues that um, Valdemar is referring to and Maria Claudia. So it wasn't a very sustainable mechanism. And we saw these cycles of boom and bust happening all the time. And the communities themselves, they reached a point where they were looking always at us for the money. They weren't looking internally and thinking, like, what, what are the opportunities here? So you saw these cycles of boom and bust. Things would go well when there's grant funding for periods of three to five years. That's not even really enough time to get to the point where fishermen, local fishermen are seeing the benefits, you know, in terms of increased fish catches and income. What we realized was when I was doing my PhD on this and I was invited to the Philippines by my co-founder and in doing so we realized that there's a really good fit or a synergy between marine protected areas and seaweed. We're lucky, you know, and I take my hat off to Maria Claudia and to Valdemar for working in these really complex and challenging markets in the, in the case of blue carbon. We're really lucky to be working with seaweed, which has got a very long established 50 year history market from toothpaste to ice cream to pet food to processed meats to cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, even in firefighting. It's the future for tomorrow's kind of bio based plastics, bio based fertilizers, biofuels and food and feed. So there's, it's a really exciting time and opportunity with the seaweed market. So seaweed farming had been promoted as an alternative to fishing for many decades in the Philippines. However, they realized that it wasn't really delivering those outcomes. Um, there were lots of issues within the supply chain. Poverty was still rife within coastal communities, despite the fact that people were doing both fishing and seaweed farming. There's lots of illegal and destructive fishing practices happening and um, fishing efforts seem to be continuing to increase and marine resources continuing to decline. So he asked me to come out and have a look and see what was happening. And what I realized when I was there is that there's this real synergy between marine protected areas and seaweed. Both of them need protecting. So there's a danger of seaweed being stolen. And that's difficult to enforce when these farms are at sea. And the other thing was there's uh, destructive fishing practices also actually harm seaweed farms. Um, so cyanide fishing, poison fishing, blast fishing um, and bottom trawling, they can all entangle or kill seaweed in the farms. So 
These were real problems and coastal communities were really struggling. There's also a very opaque, convoluted value chain. Nobody really knew where the seaweed was coming from. Seaweed quality was declining, so the markets were struggling to get hold of good quality seaweed. And at the same time, coastal communities weren't receiving a fair price or a good price because of the number of players between them and the, and the market. So we saw an opportunity here to align some of the interests between seaweed farmers and the marine protected areas and realised that by integrating regenerative seaweed practices into marine protected areas, it could help provide seaweed farmers with some security. They could leverage the infrastructure and the ordinances and bylaws around those marine protected areas. And at the same time, having the seaweed within the marine protected area system, it meant that there was a a more constant presence within those uh, marine protected areas to conduct enforcement activities. And ultimately, the income from the seed farming enables people to set aside a larger marine protected area. So we now have eight of those prototype marine protected areas in place. On average, they're 45 times larger than the national average. And really importantly, the seaweed farming acts as a kind of you know, financial driver for the whole thing at the community level. Not only does that revenue from the seaweed farming mean that people have an incentive and a constant presence within that community, we pay a premium to seaweed farmers who are supporting the management, effective management of those marine protected areas. As well as that, um, then we've been able to build capacity, social infrastructure within those communities. And people have actually started to realize that they have some resources themselves um, and they can be empowered to do something. So some of our communities, for example, they save money together. For example, one of the communities that we work with, at one point they got together and they put 500 US dollars, equivalent of 500 US dollars, which is a lot of money for marginalized coastal fishing communities living at the poverty line, to be able to upgrade their guardhouse to install solar power um, so they could recharge torches so they could enforce their seaweed farms and also the marine protected area at night so it's been a fantastic and amazing journey and what we really wanted to do was to break free of that you know grant dependence both at the community level and also at our level um, in terms of being able to provide ongoing continued support to these communities because we we realize there's a real issue of continuity and if you don't have that kind of structure around it to provide that ongoing support then it can be very difficult to sustain activities Maria, Claudia, over to you once more. Also coming from from a conservation background, venturing off into the world of private investments, how did you find it to learn their language? Or do you still see some language barriers that exist? Oh, yes, <laughs> there are many. And I'm still in the conservation side, I have to say, <laughs> or management, perhaps. But I really understand that we need to innovate to guarantee that we will receive fundings to maintain all these activities ongoing. In order to have a high quality, in this case, blue carbon project, we need to have specific criteria that help us achieving the maximum socio-environmental and cultural benefit. And that is only happening if you put communities at the center of the design And that's what we are doing right now. So, um, yes, we need to understand the financial language, but we also need to let communities understand this new financial world. And this is something strategic that we need to balance. We need to transfer that information to financial experts, but also transfer that information to local communities. And, And it's been a challenge for us. And we have more, much more to learn right now, but at least we are walking slowly toward that path. If you were to start another project along the same lines, are there some steps or choices you would do differently now? 
Yes, I think, as I just mentioned, I would like to integrate local communities and local leaders from the very beginning of the project design phase and not along the path. In this blue carbon project, the government is the owner of the land because this is a protected area. But there is a legislation in the country where uh, when you have a protected area with communities, you have to work always with them from the very beginning. And they have to approve and accept everything that you are proposing. So in this case, I think that if we try to replicate the model, at least in Colombia in a similar area, we should work together with communities from the very beginning and also with other stakeholders. Even if it's challenging to have a complex governance structure, I believe that that gives us transparency and it's also give us um, a more coherent project and it's not only an NGO-based project. Great, thank you. Valdemar, what would you recommend other project developers that might follow into your footstep and follow a blended finance approach? Sure. So similar to Maria Claudia, um, from the beginning, we included the tourism stakeholders. So all of the investments and the product development has been done with them from the very beginning. You know, what do you think? Do you, would you be interested? Would you sign an agreement with us on this if we do this approach? So that is very important that you communicate early, often, and very honestly. The other thing is, I would say, I would have loved to meet you earlier, Dorothy, when we could have had a lot more funds to support because we see the need and we see the ability to upscale in TurnF now. We know that this is going to work. A big part of the lessons learned is that there is critical funds. And I can say to you with confidence, I can say to any impact investor with confidence, I wish I had taken $5 million, but I think we're going to get there. The other thing is that You have key and critical partners. I was saying earlier, you know, Blue Finance has provided us with a, a lot of technical support. Where do you meet a banker that's also a marine specialist? We, we could never afford this level of capacity from a small organization like the Turn of Auto Sustainability Association if they didn't upfront this. And then we have other um, partners like the Environmental Defense Fund, the Nature Conservancy, United Nations Development Program, the Protected Areas Conservation Trust. So it has taken a big network of people to do this. The other thing is you have to be honest with yourself. You either have the capacity to do this because this is not an approach that you can half bake. It takes a real feasibility, a real business plan. This is the first time in my over 25-year trajectory in this field that we have done a real business plan, rolled it out. Because in the past, we have done business plan, but where was the money to actually implement it? The funds weren't there. People didn't have the confidence to be able to invest in us. What the impact investors, Altila Mirova and yourselves, what IUCN has done for us is that now everybody wants to work with us. You have built the confidence of a very local, small organization to be able to be a game changer, a player in the field. You know, you can't pay for that level. So for us, beyond the investment and the product, The tourism stakeholders see us as business partners, real business partners. We have implemented now millions of dollars on the ground. So they are saying, you're not here coming to us with a big stick approach and saying you want to collect fees. We are seeing the products. Recently, we had a couple of tour guides with their visitors come in and test the product. 
And the reactions were incredible. They were like, wow, this is the best product we have seen in a long time. We love this approach that you're doing. This is going to be great. It's better than anything else that we have seen. That kind of reaction is very important. Wow, fascinating. Indeed, impact for nature and people. Nick, you really did a big leap and again, you know, set up your own company, uh, went out working with the local communities for um, local impact. What do you wish you would have known back when you started this journey and what would be your advice to, again, some that would follow into your footsteps? Very good question, Dorothy. Well, I think to some extent, a bit of naivety is, uh, is probably a good thing to start. <laughs> would you embark on the same journey if you knew what you were getting yourself into? I mean, what's really interesting is listening to Maria Claudia and Valdemar is that for all of us, this isn't something that happened overnight. There's quite a long backstory to the work that we're doing. And I think the things that were really important are knowing where the support is. And for that, BNCFF has been critical and, and really important step. I would say we're still on that kind of impact investment readiness journey. We're hoping to get there um, very soon and receive that impact investment. And we're in discussions on a number of investments just now in the full due diligence phases. But as you're starting that journey, it's very hard to, through grant funding, to start building the business revenues. And that was an opportunity that BNCFF really provided for us um, to have some capital to start building out those business revenues. That doesn't necessarily fit very neatly into traditional philanthropic grants. Um, so that was really important. And then also finding the, the right people to support who had that, to Valdemar's point, of, who had that kind of business knowledge, starting to be able to translate for you and explain to you <clears throat> what some of these investment terms mean. And I'm pleased to say there's more and more organizations and groups that are coming to the fore now who are able to help with that sort of thing. I don't think that was as common sort of three or four years ago. The other thing, I think Valdemar mentioned something similar to this as well, is the resourcing side of things. We started within a um, large conservation organization, ZSL. ZSL have been incredibly supportive of this whole process and we wouldn't have been able to do it without them. At the same time, there is a process of spinning out or exiting a conservation organization as well as a process of establishing a new entity and a social enterprise. So there's kind of two processes happening in parallel and you do need to kind of make sure that you've got the support. We've been very lucky with the support in ZSL, but you need to make sure you've got that support within that organization that you're you're spinning out from and that there's resourcing for both sides of that equation. And that's not always an easy thing to find. Wow, I feel like we could still talk for two hours and not even, you know, get in the deep. So, wow, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm blown away. <laughs> Thank you to my wonderful guests this week, Nick Hill, Valdemar Andrade and Maria Claudia Diaz Granados. If you'd like to find out more about the project discussed in this episode, please visit the BNCFF website on bluenaturalcapital.org as well as conservation.org. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to Investing for Ocean Impact wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you hear something that interests you, please do leave a review of the podcast or spread the word to a friend or colleague. Please join us again for next episode as we talk to another project developer, but also bring in the investors 
Why are they interested in nature-based solutions? What are they looking for in order to be able to close the deal with a specific project? I've been Dorothy Hare. Hope to see you next time.